Live from the J.C. Newman Cigar Studio in Boston, Massachusetts, and the Gurkha Cigar Studio in beautiful British Columbia, welcome to the Smokin' Tobacco Show with your hosts, Matt Tobacco and Mitchell Santaga. People just get Matt to mute since we're getting a bit of a echo. Ah, there we go. Uh, welcome to the Smokin' Tobacco Show. Uh, unfortunately, Matthew Tobacco is not here joining you, so it is me, Mitchell Santaga, at the Gurkha Cigar Studio in Beautiful, absolutely beautiful British Columbia, and we have a special guest. It is the Canadian takeover of the Smoking Tobacco Show, and joining me is John McTavish from Alberta. How are you doing, John? I'm doing good, Mitchell. Thanks for having me. And of course, now that the Canadians have taken over, everyone's going to be sorry. Oh, they're going to be sorry, eh? So sorry, eh? So sorry. Yeah. It's, so how, uh, is the, how, how, how is the weather in beautiful British Columbia today? Because you guys typically get a pretty mild winter. So, Yeah, you know, the last three winters have been very snowy. Um, we've had a white Christmas, which I've never really grown up having. And it was very strange. And we mm. thought, um, you know, climate change was just going to throw us into the deepest, darkest depths of winter and turn us into a real Canadian province. But uh, just kidding. This year, it is really warm. It was eight degrees nine degrees uh freedom so it, it was yeah, you got to convert into freedom uh, otherwise our audience yeah, won't 40, know. 46 47 uh freedom and uh yeah it was absolutely beautiful we had sunshine there was actually no rain you know vancouver's second name is also called raincouver because we mm -hmm. are a rainforest um yeah it, it was it was just beautiful so uh awesome christmas nice. how about you how are you guys doing up in uh in uh in Alberta. Good, good. Last year, uh, this time it was, you know, below, it was below minus 20 freedom. So you like, there was points where it was below minus 30 science, which is, that's pretty cold. And this year it's pretty much the complete opposite. Uh, we've been hovering in the low to mid forties, uh, early, earlier last week, it was like in the low fifties, which is for people who don't understand wow. the weather insane. here in Calgary can range pretty dramatically, but that's extremely unusual for December. So I, you know, I think it's the El Nino, uh, Western Canada is kind yeah. of getting the benefit of that. And, uh, our friends, our friends over in Eastern Canada are, uh, getting a little more of the snow and a little more of the cold stuff. So that's, uh, we're, we're sending a little love their way, I think. Yeah. A little bit of that classic Canadian winter for sure. But, uh, right. no, it's been, it's been awesome. It's been absolutely awesome. And, uh, yeah. As we are in Canada, we have the privilege to have access to some cigars. Unfortunately, our friends down south sometimes don't always get their hands on. And if they do, everyone just says they're fake anyway. So um, that's right. You know, post all your pictures and get 100 comments saying everything's fake. Um, but as always, our cigars are brought to you, even though the number two guy's cigars won't be carrying these exact markers uh, because, because they, they do, do not, not carry, carry that stuff. stuff. They, they are, are always, always the, the ones, ones that are, that are uh... <clears throat> sorry, they're always the ones that are, are showcasing our cigars. Again, that's the two guys, cigars.com. And our cigars are brought to you by the two guys, cigars.com. Um, I'll s allow you to go first. Um, what are you smoking today, John? So, uh, I, I, it's very rare that I actually get to sit down and smoke a cigar for me. It's even rarer that I get to sit down and smoke a Cuban cigar. 
so I was, you know, really quite torn in my selection. I finally landed on something a little on the frou-frou end, which is uh, the Punch Regional Italia, uh, the formerly known, formerly known as the Mantua. Um, so it's an Italian regional punch. Uh, I think these came out in 2019. Uh, there's quite a story behind them, but uh, they finally got to me, I think, in 2021, 2020. The... Uh, pandemic kind of threw a bit of a curveball in my box so it spent a little more time in italy than it should have what are you smoking today i am smoking the h upman connoisseur a oh, uh this is from i think a 2021 or 2022 box i forget uh, a buddy of mine bought a box about a year or two ago might have even been post dated beyond that uh and he gifted me a single and uh, yeah, on light up, this is this is smoking pretty good so far. You know, I, I made sure to cut it well before to see if we had a good draw on our <laughs> on on this. And uh, yeah, I store everything pretty low at sixty two percent, so most of my Cuban stuff tends to draw okay. Um, but uh, but yeah, this is smoking yeah. smoking really nice. And same thing, I barely ever you know again us doing reviews consistently and and checking out so many new cigars coming out every year right um very very rarely do i get to sit down and actually smoke a cuban um they aren't necessarily always up my alley for profile but uh but the occasional one really hits the spot for me and uh, like any region the tobaccos from cuba are so are so um unique right every region just has their mm -hmm. their underlying flavor profile but yeah h jumpman you know what was it last year they won uh they won a cigar of the year but i didn't have the number two so yeah <laughs> well i mean it's it's kind of funny because you know just even in in lingo of talking about cuban cigars there, there's certain things that sort of come along with that like we immediately start talking about what the age of it is in terms of what the box code is you know like i didn't memorize the box code of my mantua but like it, you know if we're talking box codes or, or manufacturing dates, those just aren't things that we typically talk about when we're talking about new world cigars. Like I can't remember the last time, if ever someone said, you know, hey, you're smoking a Tatuaje Black Label. What what year was that put out? Like what year is that box? And it, it wouldn't yeah. even have occurred to me to know or look it up. Although, you know, I know that there are some new world manufacturers that do put out box codes on their on their cigars. So that, I mean, that's kind of mm -hmm. kind of a cool nod kind of a cool throwback yeah i think i think even part of it is that cuban cigars kind of rising up with the tides alongside like the wine industry of having that like idea of vintage right and even though they obviously try to blend to make the cigar as similar as possible they understand that each year each crop is going to have some drastic or can have drastic changes and they don't always try to blend out those changes they just go you know what this is the tobacco we usually use we're going to put it in there we're going to blend it as close to say a romeo or as close to a you know a monte number two and whatever comes out comes out right and and that's what we have for that box date that year um the other thing is you know as cuban smokers some cigars coming out of certain factories again people linking up box codes to certain factories sometimes you're like oh this factory was really just like got a really nice batch of tobacco they were they were rolling really well and then all of a sudden another thing whereas the new world way of blending has just changed so much 
the way we look at cigars because their consistency yep. in rolling, you know, the draw tools, everything like that, their ability to consistently blend the cigar in terms of using tobaccos that are blended to make the profile as similar as possible every time. Sometimes they're taking out a half leaf there, adding a half leaf there. Um, it's just a totally different way to look at it. And the box state doesn't really matter because, again, you take a Perdomo champagne, you smoke it a box from 10 years ago and you smoke a box from today. Obviously, it's a little different because it's aged 10 years, but the f- the flavor consistency is there, right? So Yeah, I kind of, I've always in my head likened, uh, you know, because it is still tobacco, but at the, the end of the day, I've likened Cuban cigars to being wine. That is, you know, the box is not going to taste the same it's going to taste similar, but it's not going to taste the same as the previous year or two years ago or five years ago. Whereas with uh, new age or non-Cubans, I kind of think of it as whiskey in the sense that, you know, when a manufacturer is putting out a cigar, the, like you said, the intent is what it tastes like today is how it should taste tomorrow, next year, two years. And that's easily said, not easily followed because sure. like you said, tobacco, I mean, tobacco is a living thing. It changes from crop to crop. It changes from year to year. And so it's, you know, like whiskey, it's very complicated to make sure that that profile stays the same. Um, and I think, you know, with Cubans, I mean, Cuban cigars have changed so much in the, in, well, even in five years, but, you know, I can remember, call it, you know, even 15 years ago, it, it was pretty much unheard of to go and buy a box and just start smoking. Like you, it was kind of, commonly understood that like you buy a box you're probably going to sit on it for you know two or three years before you sort of deem it to be kind of ready to start smoking and that was kind of what led in or, you know a big part of that box code box date thing was to say well you know yep. if i bought uh some 2009s well i'm not going to smoke those until 2012 or 2011 because i know that you know they need a couple years under them to sort of get their legs and that's certainly a completely different philosophy from from uh, non-Cubans where the expectation is, you know, really as quickly as you can kind of get it out, you know, obviously it needs to it needs to acclimate for, you know, 90 days or 120 days, depending on the manufacturer. But that's ready to smoke like, it, you know, they and a lot of manufacturers will say, like, don't sit on this for six months, like start smoking exactly. immediately. It's ready to go. Exactly. No, for sure. And uh, before we get too far into things, I always want to remember to mention st dupont you know smoking tobacco here we like to light and cut our cigars we already are these to have lit and cut our cigars but we love to use the new defi extreme it's a new double torch flame they've got a couple new uh colors out there that you can go check out make sure to head to st dupont to go or even head into your local retailer your local st dupont retailer i think online they have a uh, a retail finder so go uh go check them out and you know they've always also got that that classic ping the line too what a beautiful beautiful lighter i don't know if you have any st dupont in your lineup john but we absolutely love our st dupont here the cutters just cut so butter smooth and we always get that perfect light you know especially in the beginning you need that perfect light and uh, st dupont be exceptional do you have any well, st dupont I- I have some maxi jets and some mini jets. I, I, I've struggled because I really, really, really want like a line too, but the sort of Scottish ancestry in me is like, man, that's a lot of money to pay for the, for the lighter. But then, you know, the cigar aficionado in me is like, yeah, but wouldn't it be really cool to have a perfect ping two lighter? I'm like, yeah, it would be really cool. So you know, I go back and forth. Uh, I actually ran into last man a couple weeks ago. Who's one of the, I think he's, 
I can't remember his title, national sales manager for us, Dupont, in in yeah. the state. And he had his catalog, and you know, going through that is it's like a kid in a candy store. I mean, you just you kind of want everything. You want the lighter, you want the cutter. They've got fountain mm-hmm. pens, which obviously I'm a huge fan of. Um, yeah, they make some really nice stuff. They do, and you know, I. I always like to tell people, like especially going into the line too, it's it's a bit of an investment. You get a piece of um, equipment that you can you can pass on through generations. You know, it's like getting a nice uh, nice mechanical watch, right? It's it can be repaired. It can be if if you treat it right, it can last for years, and uh, it's it's absolutely beautiful. The craftsmanship and you know the amount of work that goes into each piece is beyond pretty much any lighter out there. Right. So really yeah. awesome brand, really cool. But, uh, and they're stunning show yeah. pieces, right? Cause they, yeah, they've got a variety oh, of different absolutely. finishes. So yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, I kind of wanted to start out by maybe talking a bit about kind of how the U S doesn't necessarily have access to Cubans, but they do have access to Cuban markas that are maybe like, you know, the same names, um, you know, obviously there are Romeo and Julietas in the U.S., but they're made in the Dominican versus um, Canada. Again, you've been in the industry for quite a while. Do you know or remember how exactly some of those brands can exist in the States um, alongside and, and use those names? Yeah, I mean, essentially what happened was, uh, not to bore everyone with, because with, I'm not a lawyer, nor am I a doctor, but... Uh, Cuba never trademarked those those brands. Um, so essentially, what had happened was uh, American companies had trademarked those brands. Um, so it's you know it's a legitimate trademark, and obviously it's been fought over for a very long time now. Um, but those those trademarks are trademarked within the United States. And what's really interesting about that is that technically, and, and here's some sort of fun uh, Canada America Cuba relations. Cuba, uh, Cuba trademarks are recognized in Canada. So if you don't, if you try to find those, uh, Canadian or American trademarked, uh, Cuban brand names in Canada, they're not allowed to be sold on the market in Canada. I think almost everywhere else in the world, except the U S they are trademarked, um, under Cuba, at least I know for like EU and a lot of the middle East. Um, and I think you know, part, most parts of Asia. So it's kind of interesting how, you know, the states have this huge hold over the industry, but they also like have this little gap that like Cuba owns these markets, just not in their country. Um, and it's always a big debate. And the reason why I want to talk about this, because, uh, you know, one day the, uh, the embargo may get lifted. And one of the biggest issues behind that, which is always a fun topic to talk about, is what happens to those trademarks? Who will win? You know, we already see, you know, last week we talked a little bit bit about um, trademark infringements. And one battle that keeps happening is the uh, Cohiba battle with, I think, General Cigar Zones that. Um, And, uh, and and habanos and they keep they keep fighting back and forth between that trademark uh, because of just the origin origination of it and if the embargo gets lifted and the states is now open to importing cuban cigars what happens to the marcas say like romeo julieta monte like monte cristo is now 
an absolutely massive brand. You know, mm-hmm. they're they're huge in the states, and they have you know so many so many you know sub brands that have come out. What happens to that? Like, do you think, like, do you think part of even not even like opening the embargo is to just protect those trademarks in the states, or you know, do you think Cuba would win, or do you think the states would win? if the embargo was, was opened up for the, for those trademarks. I, th- I think the lawyers would win um, because, <laughs> you know, it's been, it's been fought over for decades, decades and decades uh, with really no end in sight. And it keeps going back and forth. Um, I don't think it plays any part into the embargo. I think the embargo really is about Cubans who left Cuba, uh, you know, and lived through the experience that they lived through. And so they're not particularly, ready and understandably to say, you know, let's drop the embargo. Cause I think, you know, not to speak for Cubans cause I'm not Cuban either, but yeah. from their perspective, it's like, if you, if you let the embargo go, you're essentially saying it's okay. What Cuba did to the people at the time, it's okay that they, you know, took businesses and land away from people that live there. Uh, and I'm sure that's a very, very difficult thing. I can't imagine if that happened to me, I would be ready to forgive. But in terms of the, the patents and the, and the, um, in the markas, I, you know, I don't know how that's going to coexist. I don't know that there's ever been a case of that. That is, you know, elsewhere in the world, it's sort of a unique situation where the, you have two very longstanding brands now, well, many longstanding brands, but two umbrellas of brands and they've been around for a very long time. So you're not, you know, neither one is going to be able to change or going to want to change their branding, their strategy, or their name for the market. So it's it is an interesting situation. You know, presumably eventually the embargo will lift. And I assume at that time Cuba will want to market their products in the United States. So, you know, I can't imagine they're going to be willing to change a lot about the packaging and the name. So I assume at the end a whole pile of money is going to have to change hand between hands between the American company, the companies that have American brand owners or American um, uh, copyright on that versus the the Cuban side of things. Um, yeah. But, you know, there's going to be no winner except for the uh, the lawyers. And then obviously, you know, the bigger issue is um, how is how is Cuba going to manage to address uh, property owners who lost their property and their businesses? Um, because that's, you know, that it's got to be in the hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars in um, reparations that would, or, you know, property ownership that need to be addressed. And I don't yeah. even know how you begin to, to tackle that, honestly. Yeah. You know, uh, I think when uh, a few years ago, there was a, a pretty close resolution. I don't really know what the resolution necessarily entailed to ending the embargo, but there was, there was whispers that it might happen. Um, back, I think this was what, maybe eight years ago now during the Obama administration. Again, both of us not right. American, so I'm not hugely into American politics, but uh, there was whispers of it um, happening. And I don't know what they had in terms of that. I expect, like you mentioned, the reparations things. I just expect them to say, we're not going to pay this out and we're just, people are just going to have to accept a new future moving forward. But yeah, it, it will be, it will be absolutely insane if it ever gets in, in lifted due to those, uh, those, like you said, multiple brands having multiple years of two delineations of one being accepted in the U S and one not. And then both of them now, if they were accepted there, 
uh, yeah, and that's a good point as well from Uncle Larry, the, the demand. Um, you know, obviously the worldwide demand is already in a struggle. You know, they've been trying to cull that with massive amounts of price increases. Um, you know, this is definitely one of the topics I wanted to talk about was Cuban cigars and where are they? You know, uh, there's just stories upon stories of people going to Cuba, Mexico, you know, even us in Canada right now, you go to a store and you look at the Cuban section and it's one third of the amount of cigars we had five years ago, mm. you know, and uh, the prices are triple. So, um, yeah, what what happened? Why do you think that's happening? And do you think that Cuba in the future will be able to change and possibly increase their demand or increase their production to try to reach the current demand for the world uh, the world market. Ooh, how much time do we have? Um, so I'll touch on the smallest piece first, which is the Canadian piece. And so interestingly enough, uh, the, the Canadian side of things was kind of a two front issue. The first being plain packaging, which essentially Cuba's response to plain packaging was, uh, if you're going to require us to plain package our cigars for the Canadian market, uh, we're going to reduce the number of markets that are available on the Canadian market. And so I think originally, yep. I'd have to think back to my retailer days in Canada, but I, you know, I think we had 10 or 11, maybe 12 markas available, uh, maybe more than that. And it's been reduced to, I want to say three or four. So uh, Marshall's got an interesting comment, which we see very commonly about Cuba sourcing tobacco. We'll, and it's, we'll get into that later. <laughs> very good. For sure. Uh the second piece of that, of course, is that during the pandemic, uh, there was a, a confluence of really bad things happening for Cuba. One was uh, the Altidus uh, ownership of Imperial Altidus ownership of the Habanos SA was being sold off to a basically a private investment firm, private investment company that closed in, I think, I think the timeline was uh, 2020. Um, so, you know, of course it was right before the pandemic. And for those who aren't aware, a major, major component of Cuba beyond tobacco and rum and, and, uh, sugarcane is tourism. I mean, tourism, I think is like the largest yeah. segment, the largest single segment and, uh, Canadians, you know, part of the, part of the Canadian thing is that Canadians were, have been always the second largest group of travelers of tourists to Cuba. Um, I think like at one point it, consistently there was over a million Cuban or a million Cubans, million Canadians visiting Cuba uh, yearly. And, you know, put it in context at the time there was only, you know, between 30 and 33 million uh, uh, Canadians to travel. So yep. it's a, it's a pretty, you know, the, the comparison sure. would be, yeah. I mean, you imagine if 12 million Americans visited Cuba every year, that's a, that's a huge amount of people. So you've got, uh, You've got the sale of the brands. You've got a series of tobacco fires and crop failures, uh, you know, part, partially due to uh, hurricanes, partially due to just storms and flooding. Uh, and then you add into that all of a sudden a pandemic. So everything shuts down. You've got labor shortages because no one can work. So for Cuba, it was kind of the worst possible combination of things all at once. And then, of course, you know, with tourism really not recovering for, you know, at least 18 months, you've got a lack of, of funds coming in to support the industry, 
There's a lot of ancillary stuff that comes from that. So, you know, it was a really, really bad combination of things if you're a Cuban cigar person. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of people out there that are um, really hardcore Cuban-only cigar smokers. And I, you know, I've got lots of friends here in Calgary. They're Cuban-only cigar smokers. They have no interest in uh, non-Cuban cigars, interestingly enough. Yeah, for sure. I think all those points are fair, you know, um, with that, the addition of that, uh, privately owned company, one of the main things they did across the board was kind of this standardization worldwide of pricing, right? And it was based off of the Hong Kong market, which was already one of the highest, uh, price points in the world. Um, since then, I think they've announced two other price increases or one, and then I think one is expected to come up next year. So there's been um, there's been consistent price increase. I mean, the largest price increases were the sort of two uh, what do they call them marquee brands, which is Cohiba, and then curiously, uh, well, curious to me, the second brand that was chosen was Trinidad, and it's yep. funny to me because you know I visited I've visited Cuba many many times, and I would say ten years ago no one was buying Trinidad. Like no one was walking into a shop in Cuba and picking up boxes of Trinidad. Uh, They were kind of, you know, well, if you're a Trinidad smoker, you'll smoke Trinidad, but most people don't smoke Trinidad. And sort of fast forward today, and they're like, well, no, Trinidad's one of the brands that we're going to increase the price 350% on because it's it's kind of our, you know, it's our marquee brand, which is um, curious. It's interesting. Yeah. I think, again, I think internationally outside of Canada, um, Trinidad might have a stronger foothold than mm. we necessarily see here. I think here, Cohiba, Partagas, Monty really, really dominate the market. Um, and a lot of people, I think, again, I haven't smoked too many Trinidad, so I can't really say for sure. But I think Trinidad maybe is a little stronger and has uh, maybe some slightly different flavor profiles that are outside of what those other three markets offer but uh but yeah it's it's uh it's definitely i've never again i was actually same as you surprised when trinidad had such a large increase because i've noticed as well that the the canadian market tends not to to go that way but uh they love their cohibas here they love their montes here and uh yeah interestingly yeah. Um, just to give it, uh, audience a sense of pricing. So, uh, I, I actually, uh, cause I like to do homework. Uh, it's just how I'm built, but I was, I was pulling up some current pricing just to get a sense of kind of where we are currently in the market. So to give you a sense of a Bahike 52 box, now Bahikes are not inexpensive cigars to begin with, but as of a few months ago, the market price for a box of Cohibas is $1,930 US, which puts it at $193 a cigar because they're 10 count boxes. Yeah. The Trinidad Fundadores, which is uh, essentially it's a Lancero. It's actually one of my favorite cigars. Uh, I could pick those up back in the day for, call it 220 240 You know, at one point it was 300 uh, Those are currently going Locks, for 1573 right? US, which is because they're, t- t- I want to say 24 count. Uh, they're an odd count box, but they're $65.55 US a cigar. Yeah. And then... Uh, the Ramon Ione is specially selected, which is, uh, you know, it's a pretty common, call it value price cigar. A uh, box of those will set you back $717 or $14.35 a cigar, which actually is, you know, unfortunately, current market, that's 
pretty good value. $14 for, for Ramon Iones is pretty good. I mean, they used to be $7, $7.50, but, yeah. you know, it's, that's that's where we're at. It's the interesting thing that there was, like, these hand-picked Vitolas out of these brands that, like, went up so drastically, but there's still these kind of, like, hidden gems within the portfolio that, like, you can get under, like, that sub-15 or sub-$20 USD um, that still really, really offer you a great smoking experience through Cuban cigars. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's been, it's been really interesting seeing their, their change in price increases with that sale to the, um, from, from Altidus to the, to the privatized owned brand. Um, and it will be really interesting to see where those prices go. Obviously, uh, whether or not we th- it's had a direct correlation, but I think it did have a pretty significant correlation on the U.S. market, which uh, you noticed, you know, obviously going to the trade show last year, there was multiple $100 plus cigars introduced to the market, you know, take two or three years ago. And, you know, I think in total, there was maybe less than five or 10 on the market that were in over, you know, hitting three, three digits. And now we have multiple being released in a single year. Um, you know, I don't know if it was directly from Cuba's influence of A, increasing their prices and B, d- decreasing their amount of cigars being accessible through the rest of the world. But it seems like that's have had a pretty significant effect, um, you know, increasing that ultra premium kind of price point, uh, you know, offering that to the rest of the world, because again, you know, the rest of the world has been used to kind of paying that 40 plus dollar cigar, especially like, you know, with taxes involved pretty much everywhere outside the United States, cigars are taxed at a pretty high rate, you know, in Canada, ranging from 150 to 350%, depending on your province. Um, you know, I think that's made a, a huge impact on the U.S. market and people now feeling comfortable to introduce a $100 cigar and uh, not really blinking an eye and then even just releasing it to the rest of the world. Yeah, I think I think it's completely fair to say that the prices, the price increases we've seen in the non-Cuban market with the average pricing of cigars going up partially due to economics and tobacco, but yep. certainly partially, I think, and uh, certainly at the higher end of the extreme when we see the $100 plus cigars, I think that's 100% attributable to, to be blunt, smart manufacturers saying, look, if someone's reason, if someone's willing out there to pay two, three, $400 for a single Cuban cigar, then why can't we put out a product that you know we feel is produced as well or better and put it out at a at a premium price point. And you know, I think if any if you if you'd said to me three years ago that the market would be able to um, be able to sustain hundred dollar plus cigar pricing, I would have said, I think you're a lunatic. And now, yeah. you know, 22, 23, I would say I'm not even sure that we've seen the upper threshold of what people are willing to pay when I see auction prices on cigars and people are selling, call them, you know, vintage, but they're not really vintage. They're selling 2010, 2012, 2013 boxes of cigars, and they're going for $6,000 US plus. I think that the luxury market has kind of spoken and said, look, you know, I'm not a luxury market guy. I, you know, I, I mentioned earlier, I don't have a line to uh, lighter. So I'm, that's not my market. I'm not, uh, I'm in, I was in oil and gas, but I'm not, I don't own, own an oil and gas company. 
So I think you, you look at that and you say, well, the upper threshold could be way higher than what we think it is. Maybe there's a market for $500 cigars to the luxury people out there where $500 is kind of the equivalent to them of $5. Maybe that, that market is just hasn't even been touched. No, for sure. I, I definitely agree. I don't think we've seen the upper threshold of it yet. Um, again, because uh, get, you take in the international market and, and you just take in the price increase of everything, not just cigars, but every single industry has seen a drastic price. So um, yeah, price, well, price is just going especially up Especially luxury goods, right? Like look at, um, yeah. you know, like you were talking about mechanical watches, like look at mechanical watches, look at really nice timepieces. The price for those have exploded. I mean, it's not un, unheard of for somebody to be paying forty or fifty thousand dollars for a Rolex now, which is Urban, is yeah. crazy. The Jay actually already beat me to it in the comments, but you look at the pricing in the secondary market for bourbon. Bourbon is a very inexpensive product to produce. It's a very inexpensive product in the past, and now you've got people chasing thirty, forty dollar bottles of bourbon for two to three hundred dollars, yep. which yeah, absolutely. like. You know, again, to me, I'm not the kind of guy who's going to go out and spend $300 for a $40 bottle of bourbon. But there are lots of people out there who are absolutely willing to do that. Yep. You know, another one for me that hits personally because I am a musician is concert tickets. You know, mm. I've seen just absolutely uh, blasphemous prices on concert tickets. You know, back in the day, 40 to 100 bucks was the range. And that was for a top end concert. Now yeah. you every I don't think you can go to a big concert under a hundred dollars, and yeah. usually you have scalpers or some form of secondary market person buying up a majority of them and relisting them for thousands of dollars, and they still sell, right? You know that's and they still sell. That's the crazy part. They still sell. Well, I think I think um, that's really the yeah. key here, right? Is that people are people are absolutely willing to pay that, and you know at at, at its heart, like. You know, I've, I've kind of come to terms to say, look, uh, the cigar manufacturers out there deserve to make money. They're running a business. Mm -hmm. They're still making lots of products that are very well. I mean, listen, if, if you go to if you go to Nicaragua or the Dominican and you see cigars being made and you see the whole process, you come back to the States. Your first thought is, Oh my gosh, I cannot believe that they can make this cigar and put it on the market and sell it for $10 and a cigar store can stay in business and they can pay their people and buy tobacco. Because when you look at the whole process and you look at how many people are involved and how many steps are involved, you would think it, it should cost $70 or $80 to, to make that product. So, you know, Absolutely. the, the, yeah. So there's a, a big part of me that says, look, if they can put out a $300 cigar and people are willing to buy that, then they should, because, yeah. you know, why not? Why not capture that market? For sure. And, you know, for those who do go out and buy it, I think it can be a nice investment. I think it's nice to splurge every once in a while. You know, uh, it's, uh, I think part of what the pandemic did was kind of put people's lives into perspective of, you know, you never know, just even just kind of having to be indoors and, not knowing where, when, and how the world can change. It's like, you know, I'd like to enjoy something like this every once in a while. And, you know, hopefully it's an experience that goes above and beyond anything you've experienced before. At least that's the hope, right? Sometimes it's a little bit of FOMO and sometimes it's a little bit of that, but uh, 
yeah, I think every once in a while it's it's nice to splurge on those products. Yeah, you know, and, I'd like and to like kind I of said, talk you know, about, go ahead. Uh, I just wanted to to check in with uh, with how the cigars are doing. Uh, if you had any more points to say to talk about price, we can kind of finish up that, and then we'll see how these uh, these Cubans are tasting. Uh, you know, I'm really enjoying the punch Mantua. It's um, I would say firmly medium bodied, medium strength. Uh, of course, one of the things that I find difficult is that. To me, where Cuban cigars sit on the sort of strength and body scale, I have to recalibrate versus the the sort of non-Cuban market. I know that that sounds a little wackadoodle, but to be honest, you know, when someone says a full-bodied Cuban cigar, to me, when I factor in the non-Cuban body, to me, a full-bodied Cuban cigar is a medium-bodied non-Cuban. That's not a knock. It's just you know when when I look at what the what the sort of flavor combinations are. I tend to find a full body, even a full body, full strength Cuban to be a medium yep. body, medium strength, non-Cuban. And I, that's always been a challenge for me when I make recommendations or have made more recommendations in the last two years to people who are unfortunately being priced out of the Cuban market. And, you know, they're trying to move into the, the new world. And so it's a very difficult line to straddle to say, well, you know, I need to give you some recommendations, but I also need to give you recommendations that are not going to blow your head off because the last thing you want to do is take somebody who smokes Hoya de Monterey and he's like, Oh, you know, can you make a recommendation? And I'm telling him to smoke Roma craft. Well, he's never going to smoke a new world cigar again because it's going to be way too much for him. So, uh, yeah, there's a fine line to walk. There's a lot of tobacco in there. How's your, uh, how's your H Upman going? Yeah, this uh, H Upman Kanye is, uh, is going well. It really started out as you mentioned, uh, you just have to recalibrate what you're expecting, right? It started out really light, light to medium minus creamy cedar. Um, and as many people who have smoked Cubans in the past, Cuban just, for me, always have this underlying like sweet cedar and must note like that Ooh. just really lingers on the palate nicely. Um, sometimes if it isn't aged enough, it can become acrid and, and a little vegetal. But uh, I think this has rested a, a decent amount of time, uh, enough for at least me to get to the midway and not really have too much of that bitterness and the acridity um, vegetal notes on the palate lingering. And uh, yeah, it's it's smoking nice. The burn, I've, I've had to do one little minor touch up. The burn was a little wacky, but, um, but uh, the draw has been great through this entire thing. Uh, and that kind of leads me into the next thing of quality control of Cuban cigars and Again, you've obviously been smoking for quite a while. Have you personally, you know, this is obviously a hard thing to say because you don't smoke every single Cuban cigar and obviously you've been doing a lot of reviews. Um, but we we uh, hang out with a lot of people who do smoke a lot of Cuban cigars. We can see how it's performing. We talk to them and, and, and ask them how things are. Uh, there's always this underlying conversation of Cuban cigars are not made well. Um, mm. I think again, for me personally, it's not necessarily that they aren't made well. I think they're just made slightly different and the expectation is very different from a new world to a Cuban. Like, uh, in general, Cuban cigars have a little bit of that tighter draw. Um, but they're always, they're always producing a good amount of smoke for me. And again, if you store them at that proper humidity, I think is one of the biggest things, but uh, have you personally noticed anything in the last three to five years, quality control wise, that has been like, wow, Cubans have really gone downhill, or do you think it's been pretty consistent? 
I mean, I wouldn't say three to five years. I would say that um, some of the criticisms are completely fair in the sense that, look, you've got a you've got a very small country that's producing, you know, call it 80 million cigars a year, which is probably generous at this point. And they need to produce more. They, you know, if they if they had the capability of producing 200 million cigars, they would and they would all sell. But the problem is they they can only produce a certain amount, and so you know, for the non-Cuban market, it's always a struggle between maintaining quality and maintaining the amount you produce. And so if you go back to, you know, the 2000s, <laughs> there was a lot of Cuban cigars that were being made and and the quality control was awful. I mean, you would get entire boxes that were literally unsmokable. Entire boxes were plugged and it was a major, major problem. And I would say that you know, if you fast forward to sort of late 2000s, 2010 plus, quality did improve substantially. And I'm not saying everything was perfect, but it went from you could potentially get an entire box that was unsmokable to maybe you'd get, you know, a handful, call it four or five cigars out of a box that were probably too tight to smoke. I would say that that problem has largely gone away. And I would say, unfortunately, and not to throw the non-Cuban market under the bus because I love non-Cuban cigars too. Non-Cuban market has been struggling the last few years. Again, talking about production, tobacco shortages. I would say from the perspective of a reviewer who only smokes, you know, tends to only smoke new cigars for review and we do it in a very analytical way. The last three years have been the the sort of biggest challenges for the non-Cuban market in terms of quality control. Uh, I've seen issues where cigars have been underfilled or overfilled or uh, the amount of tobacco in, in cigars in the same box is inconsistent. And that's not something that I would even have run into once out of an entire year if I you know went back to kind of 2017, 2018, 2019. Those just weren't issues that were happening. It was never an issue in the non-Cuban market. So it, it's kind of unfortunately uh, an outcome of Production is through the roof. Uh, supply is 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 challenged. Uh, you know, everyone wants to smoke. Smoking is up, which is great for the industry. And production is way way up. Uh, I think the numbers just got released for Q3, and they said that you know they were down from 2022, but they're still you know if you look at 2023 uh, Q3 versus 2020 or 2021, the numbers are way way up. So yeah. Again, it's it, it's a tough thing to produce that many cigars and produce them as perfectly as you can. Absolutely, and and you know, and as we've mentioned before, like even just their access to people rolling, you know, having rollers, you know, in, oh, yeah. in Cuba can be can be tough, right? And training new people and and uh, having having the staff. And again, this goes to the new world as well, right? You know, Nicaragua and the Dominican Republic, they've been reporting on mass, you know mass exodus of people leaving the countries uh and that includes from factories you know they might have a good life and a good job there but you know they want to make their life better in ways and uh and good on them as well so you know the the cuban quality control for me yeah like i said you you pretty much nailed it on the head you know quite a while you know looking at i don't think i was smoking cubans back then or i don't even think i was legally allowed to smoke in early 2000s so (laughs) Um, I can't really say for sure, but, uh, but yeah, I've, I've definitely noticed that things have kind of been pretty consistent in terms of quality control there. 
and uh, things are starting to even out with Cuban versus New World. I have definitely noticed that uh, that what what you specifically mentioned of tobacco being underfilled or overfilled has been something that uh, has really stood out to me in some of the New World uh, brands when you're getting like a five pack and you're just like this, like you just feel it and you're like, did they even put any tobacco in this cigar? And then yeah, you light yeah. it up and it's drying like like an air. Um, but yeah, one of the other, uh, I guess uh, there was a question if you could uh, if you could pick the closest non-Cuban to compare to a Cuban, what would it personally be um, for for us? I guess um, for for me, uh, I've noticed again. I can't really every every region just naturally creates a different profile. But I think for me, yep. one of those cigars that is a really nice transitional brand and or region has been Honduras. Uh, yep. I've really liked the stuff that the Aroa family has been producing. You know, obviously 100%. they're known for using that traditional Cuban Corojo and uh, the way they're blending, the way they're creating cigars and the profiles that they're putting out there. The Cuban smoker I've found, you know, eight times out of 10, I hand them an Aladino, I hand them a CLE. They, they actually like, kind of like take their first few puffs and kind of like look at me weird and go, wow, I actually really like this. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, I think, I think those two brands, um, or at least that entire family for me has been a great way to transition people into new world cigars. Uh, Aladino, CLE, uh, anything from JRE or CLE has been, been really easy. Uh, and I do also notice that a lot of uh, Cuban smokers will easily progress to Fuente as well. Fuente is another brand right. that tends to be pretty approachable. What what have you personally found that is a nice, easy transition for Cuban smokers into the new world? So it, it's a great question because it's a question that I've been asked probably, like I said, in the last year, I've had privately more conversations about that than ever because a lot of people who smoke Cuban cigars that are in my circle of Cuban cigars and I've you know made some really great friends around the world – they'll reach out and say, look, you smoke a lot of non-Cuban cigars. So, you know, what recommendations can you make? And honestly, the first thing I say is, look, if you're trying to find a non-Cuban profile, uh, pardon me, a Cuban profile in a non-Cuban cigar, you're kind of going about it the wrong way because yeah. it's sort of the, like I, the way I explain it is if you're trying to reproduce a Nicaraguan profile in with Dominican tobaccos in the Dominican, you're probably not going to be successful. And that's not because you know, Nicaraguan tobacco is so unique. It's because the way in which their tobacco is grown and the way in which the profile sort of comes together naturally with a Nicaraguan cigar is smokes very differently than a Dominican. And the same is true of a Dominican. If you, you know, if you like Dominican cigars and I hand you a sort of typical Nicaraguan cigar, that profile for the most part, broad strokes is going to be radically different. So it's funny that you mentioned Jerry and Aroa because that sort of tends to float to the top of my list because I find that those cigars tend to match loosely in terms of body and strength. What I would consider, you know, I, I'll, I'll ask, you know, what are you typically smoking in the Cuban brands that you like? And, and that's usually my go-to. And then I'll kind of branch out from there to, you know, some of the lighter Illusiones, maybe even a warped, uh, some of the Hoya, the Hoya Connecticut, the, um, the ambassador and the Connecticut's are really great options. And, you know, what I've found is that for a lot of Cuban cigar smokers, they're, you know, you look at the Cuban market, you look at the brands, 
there's a fairly small selection of brands. So they've probably smoked or had an experience with every single Cuban market that exists. When they look at the non-Cuban market and they see that there's thousands of brands, there's hundreds and hundreds of manufacturers and thousands of brands to choose from, I think they find it a little overwhelming. And so, you know, part of that is saying, look, you smoke a cigar from Fuente, that cigar is going to smoke like a Fuente. You're not going to necessarily find a Fuente profile if you go and smoke from something from Espinosa. They're very different companies. The way they blend is very different. And so in that regard, Fuente doesn't represent Dominican tobacco any more than La Aurora represents Dominican tobacco. And I think it's really tough sometimes for them to kind of wrap their heads around that concept that you can't just smoke one Nicaraguan or Dominican or Honduran cigar and that be reflective of the market as a whole because there's there's just, even within, you know, talking about JRE and Aroa, there's, there's dozens and dozens of cigars within their portfolio that smoke yep. differently than other cigars. So you can't smoke one, you can't even smoke one size and have it be representative of what they produce on average. So, you know, it's, it's a long conversation. Uh, it's a good conversation. I think there's a, a far greater audience of people that are now for good or for bad being sort of pushed into the new world market. And they're exploring a lot more cigars than they have in the past. And I think for the most part, the feedback that I've seen is it's quite favorable. I think people have abandoned that idea that all non-Cuban cigars are pepper forward. They're you know very earth forward, very full bodied. It's like, well, that's not really the truth of the market. The truth of the market is that most non-Cuban cigars are really kind of light plus to medium. That's probably 60 to 70% of the market. And so, you know, you need to, you need to kind of pick and choose and sort of make your way through the market to kind of find what hits your palate, if that makes no, sense. Absolutely. And I think, you know, another marker, you know, a lot of us like to pair uh, spirits alongside cigars. I find mm. that sometimes the uh, Cuban smoker who uh, tends to go towards a bourbon will actually be able to handle a bit of that extra strength. Whereas if they're purely right. like, say, a rum or a scotch drinker, I don't even try to push it. And I just say, you know, let, let's <laughs> let's start with the Connecticut's. Let's start with the the Hunter and Puro kind of stuff. Um, but if, if I see they're, you know, they're pouring, you know, a, a, a 110 proof bourbon and smoking a, a Cuban cigar, I say, hey, what, why don't you try this uh, Padron, Padron uh, 1964 and, and something like that, right? So... Um, but that's, that's just another way we, I kind of can gauge at least from their, their palate, but, uh, guys stick around. We are going to, uh, we're going to next talk about that very controversial comment we already had where are Cubans using non-Cuban tobacco and vice versa? Are there, you know, without naming any names, but I think there's been some brands out there that have been. Uh, said to maybe have used Cuban tobacco in the U.S. market. Um, but first, let's hit up our new segment brought to you by McAuliffe Cigars. McAuliffe Cigars with the brand new McAuliffe Black rated 91 on SmokingTobacco.com. Make sure to head to SmokingTobacco.com. Check out our news and reviews. And uh, today's news segment, uh, obviously Christmas around. There hasn't been too much news as well as the trade show is coming up soon and people are saving all their good juicy news for for trade show but uh, we just wanted to you know lighten the mood up 
for uh, for today, a holiday season. And this was a great story that was put out by Distant Cigars. Um, Distant Cigars owner Sin Coburn uh, announced that Dis Distant Cigars has donated land near San Juan del Sur in Nicaragua, designated for the construction of Nicaragua's first ever of its kind animal rescue center. The current SOS Animales Nicaragua Veterinary Clinic and the shelter is simply out of room and is frequently forced to turn away animals in need. So Sin has decided to uh, help out and donate some land so they, they have some room to put these animals and other, and uh, you know, animals in the future that need that need the help uh there's also i think a gofundme as well for for the for the company and i think that raised uh they're trying to raise around three hundred thousand dollars for the facilities to go over top of that so make sure to head to smokingtobacco.com to read that entire uh article and head over to the gofundme to help out that uh that cause out in nicaragua to help some of the animals there uh you know it's it's uh it's most of us love animals i have a cat i've lived with dogs my entire life and uh it's always great to to help and you know this is this is the time of giving christmas and new year and it's always good to give a little bit where where it can help and again that was our new segment brought to you by mccallif cigars featuring the mccallif black so john yes the absolutely controversial subject of Cuba using non-Cuban tobacco in Cuban cigars. Do you think it's true or do you think it is only rumor? So just to frame it, so we're talking about non-Cuban tobacco being used in Cuban cigars first, correct? That's correct. We'll talk about the yeah. Cuban market first. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I don't believe that's the case, and I don't believe that's the case for a number of reasons. But this, the sort of simplest, the simplest reason would be uh, Occam's razor, which is, in order to have a sufficient amount of Dominican or Nicaraguan or whatever tobacco from outside of Cuba, Cuba would have to pay for that tobacco, and in order to pay for that tobacco, Cuba would have to have the money to pay for that tobacco, and there's absolutely no way that any tobacco grower, any tobacco consignment company is going to be willing to give them tobacco without cash up front. And so on its, on its face, I just don't believe it's possible because I don't believe that Cuba, first of all, I don't think they'd be willing to do that, but practically they just don't have the money to buy that tobacco. Um, I will say that privately, that is a question that I've asked many times being in Cuba I've had the opportunity to have private conversations uh, at various levels when I'm in Cuba. Uh, and I can tell you the response uh, from the people that I've talked to has, has just been a smile and they've just sort of chuckled at the idea that they would use non-Cuban tobacco. Um, to them, I think, you know, it's, it's a, it's a funny story. It's certainly a tale I've heard for, uh, well, probably at least 10 years, probably going on 15 years. Um, from the Cubans that I've talked to, they they believe the idea is nonsense. And like I said, from a from a practical perspective, I just don't think it's possible. Um, yeah. Okay. What do you think? Um, 
Yeah, I I've also, you know, there's been people who've told me from like the New World side that Cuba is importing tobacco from those from places outside of Cuba, which is actually publicly known that they do import some tobacco um, like online. I think there's like a, a, a economics website that that do show does show that um, Cuba and I think this was uh, 2020 or 2021 imported a lot of tobacco from the Philippines and Dominican Republic. Mind you, a lot is maybe not a huge like th- there were about half a million to about a hundred thousand dollars worth of tobacco, which isn't like an insane amount. Um, so that could just be them using it in non-Cuban cigars because they obviously don't just make Cuban cigars. I'm sure they make other tobacco-based products, um, as well as whether or not that's even getting to those factories as well. It could be being imported through through other means. Um, I, I'm not 100% sure. Again, I haven't noticed personally that um, the flavor profiles of Nicaraguan or Dominican tobacco have been slowly creeping their ways into Dominican or into Cuban cigars, sorry. So I, I don't I don't necessarily think so because I, I think that tobacco would maybe overpower what Cuba already has and it would change the profile maybe a little too far out of what they are doing. Um, mind you, I don't really smoke much Filipino tobacco, so I can't say what Filipino tobacco necessarily tastes like. So they could possibly be mixing in Filipino tobacco there. Um, but uh, but yeah, honestly, I can't say I've never been in it. Uh, I've heard now from at least two two people or three people that have you know kind of talked to at least like Dominican and Nicaraguan manufacturers that they have sent tobacco there. And again, whether it was just for them to kind of see what the rest of the world's doing or to actually use in cigars, I don't actually know. Um, but it is an interesting topic. And uh, if they are doing that, I think their money would be better spent into their own infrastructure, trying to keep up their own farmlands. So like you said, just having having that amount of money to spend to import that tobacco is, uh, is just maybe not as feasible as people think. Yeah, and I, I mean, you, a half a million to a million dollars worth of tobacco would essentially be nothing in terms of yeah. the scale of production. Like when you when you talk about 80 million, 75 million, 80 million plus cigars, um, it's it, that's such an insignificant amount of tobacco that it wouldn't even yeah. move the dial. Um, I think it's like I think it's certainly possible that um, that it could be used for domestic production of cigars, but I think what's probably more likely is that it's being used in cigarette manufacturing. Um, that's what I, I was just, thinking too. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now the other, uh, one of the, um, U S brands or brands that are sold in the U S possibly using Cuban tobacco again, without naming any brands, cause I don't want to throw anyone under the bus, but there has been in the past people, um, that have been accused, especially because there are brands in the States that will put out, um, a new brand and the whole thing will be undisclosed. And sometimes that's to protect their blend. Sometimes it's also to try to give the market like, Hey, don't base our cigar based on the tobacco that's going to come in it because people have uh, maybe some underlying notions about where 
tobacco comes from and that, oh, if it comes from here, I don't like it. And it's like, well, maybe I'm blending something differently and you are going to like it. So if, if I just tell you, don't tell you where it's coming from, maybe you'll like it. Um, do you think that there have been or there are currently companies that are blending Cuban tobacco into New World cigars? Uh in, so this it's kind of two pronged question because uh, if the question is in New World cigars that have been sold outside of the United States, uh, I 100% know factually that Cuban tobacco has been used in New World cigars that have been men, that have been on the market outside of the United States, both from having private conversations with the brand owners and also smoking them because. Uh, I've, I, I wouldn't say that I am a super tester or that I am a definitive knowledge guy when it comes to tobacco, but I would say that I feel confident in that I've smoked enough cigars that I can tell when I'm smoking Dominican tobacco, Nicaraguan tobacco, and I definitely know what Cuban tobacco tastes like. Uh, and I know for a fact that I have smoked uh, cigars that have been put on the market outside of the United States. They absolutely have Cuban tobacco, uh, you know, to what degree they have Cuban tobacco, I don't know, but they definitely have Cuban tobacco in them without a doubt. No question in my mind. 100%. Okay. 100%. There you go. Um, do, do, do those brands disclose that into the New World um, market or they don't? No. No, to my okay. knowledge, uh, I mean, there are some private label brands that are being sold in Saudi Arabia. Um, there's some private label brands that are being sold in Hong Kong that I think they, they say that. Um, but in terms of, uh, companies that are based in the United States, uh, I am not aware of any companies that have disclosed that publicly. Um, it is certainly possible that, uh, Cuban tobacco has been put into cigars that have been sold on the American market, but I would be very surprised if that's the case, uh, both from a legal perspective, because if it came down to you having to disclose that, uh, you would you would be in grave challenges legally uh, marketing that on the on the U.S. market whether you disclose that or not. So um, it's certainly possible. I, I would say it is in the realm of possibility that that has happened, uh, but I don't think that company would ever uh, would ever disclose that because it would put them in yeah. in very very difficult legal waters if they did. Yeah, no, I, I agree. You know, I don't I don't think too many brands are attempting to do it because like like we mentioned already, Cuban tobacco is already pretty mild in its in its natural state and stuff coming from Nicaragua, Dominican, and even Honduras tends to overpower that. And the legal battles that they would possibly have to face if they were to be caught or whatever the government kind of look into them. I don't think the headache's worth it, right? I don't think it's going to create the absolute like most amazing cigar in the world. There's already, you know, amazing tobacco that can legally be used in most US stuff. So, you know, the whole thing of oh, you know, I think that cigar is using Cuban tobacco. I, I don't I don't again, it's a possibility. I don't think it's happening um personally. But uh but yeah, out, no, outside think- of Outside of the states, I could I could see that because again, even if they were to disclose it, it it's not a legality issue. They probably just don't right. because they obviously deal with it in in the states. So now there there is um, I think it was not that long ago where J.C. Newman said that they were exploring uh, legally the ability to import Cuban tobacco and potentially roll them into uh, into cigars. But obviously, uh, I don't think they've been able to get anywhere with that because. It's just a, it's just a non-starter, but I think they've talked about, you know, 
exploring that. And I think they have explored that, uh, to my knowledge, uh, unfortunately that's been shut down. Um, uh, but it, you know, I think it'd be really interesting to have a, a new world or non-Cuban cigar, uh, with, uh, Cuban tobacco in it, because I think there's a, a long history of non-Cuban companies that have been able to take multi, multi-nation tobaccos, whether it's, uh, Mexican tobacco, Dominican tobacco, Honduran tobacco, uh, American tobacco, and and make that work in a cigar. So I absolutely think that they could find a way to make Cuban tobacco work in a non-Cuban cigar that would be brilliant. I would love to see that. I would love to love to see a world in which that was a thing that could do they could do legally. I think that would be really good for the market. Absolutely. You know, I think one of the one of the coolest things would be like a, a Cuban Cuban to like FSG mixed mm. with like some some Connecticut stuff like some of the milder Connecticut stuff maybe lower priming that you can get out I love some of that uh, some of that Habano being grown out in, in in Connecticut and yeah FSGs just really come a long way in the last few years and and I think it, yeah. it could be blended in pretty well with kind of interestingly maybe not necessarily well but very interestingly with, uh, with Cuban tobacco for sure We've got some interesting um, audience questions that have been popping up there. Yeah. Yeah. So one was, uh, I think it was about the soil, right? Uh, do you think mm-hmm. the the soil in the last few years has been going downhill in Cuba? And do you think that's been affecting some of the tobacco? You know, obviously we had previously mentioned some, uh, some weather issues that they've had and obviously economically getting enough uh, fertilizer and stuff in the past has been a difficult thing. What's your kind of take on the current soil state in Cuba? Yeah. So my understanding, which is certainly an incomplete understanding, but my understanding is that largely issues have been kind of twofold. One is uh, been labor. So obviously we already kind of talked a little bit about how the pandemic affected Cuba briefly. Uh, that was a huge impact to their ability to produce tobacco. Uh, but they've they've really faced over the last few years just a, an astronomical amount of, of storms and weather systems that have impacted tobacco. Uh, and then they've had some very public uh, tobacco fires that have wiped out millions of tons, uh, not pardon me, not millions of tons, many tons of tobacco, uh, high level tobacco that have been that have been wiped out uh, in multiple fires that have occurred over the last few years. Uh, that has certainly been a, a big impact to the industry. So I think it's more one of there's a there's unfortunately there's been climate issues that have been affecting Cuba, uh, and it's not just limited to Cuba. I mean, one of the one of the stories we're going to be talking about through 2024 is that there's been weather systems that have impacted Ecuador pretty significantly. Uh, Ecuador's ability to produce wrapper tobacco at a high level has been gravely impacted. Uh, we've already had manufacturers talking about how that's impacted uh, certain lines. We've had uh, tobacco issues with Connecticut River Valley, where broadleaf has become more and more scarce. So you've seen major companies switch away from Connecticut broadleaf to alternative wrappers from other countries. And yep. I don't think that's something that's going to be limited. I think that's going to be an ongoing problem, both with Ecuador, Mexico, uh, and certainly within the United States, I think as the United States becomes uh, more difficult to produce tobacco, you're going to have a lot of that, a lot of that issue affecting uh, brands that have been relying on that tobacco for some of their core releases. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think it has affected Cuba, as you mentioned, and it it's affected the rest of rest of the world. Um, you know, even already you can see the production of 
the newer cigars coming out that are in that Maduro shade uh, being San Andreas, Pennsylvania, right. um, even just like darker people starting to use darker Nicaraguan Habano, right? Like get, dark Sumatra. Those, dark Sumatra. Yep. So it's, it's not just Cuba that's been affected. It's been everywhere. Uh, obviously, you know, Cuba is definitely uh, because of their, I think their economic issues and, and just the way their country runs, maybe it can be a little bit more intensive on them, but uh, it, it's definitely being noticed everywhere. And um, the other thing, like you mentioned, Ecuador, right? I, I've noticed a pretty significant jump in prices for new released Ecuadorian shade cigars. Uh, you know, those those used to be like easily just like a great Ecuadorian shade cigar, eight bucks. You know, I don't think a new Ecuadorian shade cigar has been released that I've been like, wow, this is great under fourteen dollars. You right. know, it's like it, it, and that and that used to be a very approachable price pointed wrap cigar and it's uh yep. starting to to really really creep up there so yep cost of materials and available materials have been very very challenging and will continue to be challenged absolutely absolutely well as we kind of come to the end of the show um do you think there's any last kind of points about kind of the international market cuban cigars that you wanted to hit on that we uh that we didn't have uh talked about tonight well, I think, you know, one of the interesting things in the international market is that, uh, unfortunately, the inability of Cuba to produce cigars for a, for a quite a long time period there. Uh, we certainly saw that in the international markets with uh, stores being bare for Cuban product has been very, very positive for the non-Cuban market. You know, there, there are companies that have been in the European and international markets for a very long time, and I think they've done well. But there's been a, a significant opportunity for those brands to sort of take some of that market share away, both from a perspective of being able to produce and supply product on a regular basis, but also to produce and supply at a price point that's quite affordable for a lot of those international markets. And so I think you're going to continue to see that trend. Uh, and I don't see that trend ever reversing. I think, you know, once um, many Cuban only cigar smokers have sort of gotten into that non Cuban market. I think it's going to be very difficult to switch them back. I don't think you're going to see Cuban pricing come down. I don't think they're going to be able to get a handle on production uh, numbers anytime in the near future. Uh, the, again, the reality of tobacco manufacturing is it's just not something you can flip a switch and, and solve. So it's a, it's unfortunately, it's a bad news story for Cuba and it's a bad news story for people who really enjoy Cuban cigars, but it is a good news story for the non-Cuban market because the, the non-Cuban market has been poised for a very long time to, to ramp up production and, and start taking some of that market away. And we've certainly seen that in the last, last three years. Definitely. I agree. Um, I think we are going to see the rest of the world start to embrace New World Cigars. Um, you know, there's just great flavors and great experiences out there from so many brands. Um, and like you said, the production, the price points of Cuban cigars are just starting to become out of reach for your everyday smoker or your, your average smoker, you know, even a once a week guy, uh, it's, it's getting hard to pick up that Cuban and say, you know, this is, this is value to, to the time I'm, I'm experiencing. Um, and, yeah, think, uh, go ahead. So I was going to say, I think, I mean, the real question is going to be for people who, um, really only want to smoke Cuban cigars. And that's, you know, certainly a valid choice. Uh, I think the question is going to become if the prices continue to increase and there's no reason to think they're not going to continue to increase. 
Uh, what is their threshold for being able to bear those price increases? You know, is it going to be that they're simply going to have to pay more? Is it going to be that they're going to smoke less? Or is it going to be that, you know, those sort of holdout people who only smoke human cigars, are they going to eventually have to transition some some of their smoking or all of their smoking into the non-Cuban market? And that's going to be something to sort of keep an eye on over the next two, three years as the market continues to shift. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, as we get to our kind of final puffs of our cigars, how is uh, how's yours coming along there? How's it smoking down to the, to the band? It's, it's great. I mean, this is, you know, it's a nice treat for me to be able to sit down with you, have a cigar. Uh, like we said, uh, I, uh, because I spend most of my available cycles smoking for review. Uh, so it's nice to smoke a cigar with a friend and just be able to enjoy myself. It's also a nice treat to be able to smoke a Cuban cigar. Uh, it's very creamy. It's, it's, you know, the profile is just wonderful. Uh, it's got a wide range of flavor nuances that are there. Um, it's, it's, it's a nice treat for me to be able to sit down and smoke a Cuban cigar for sure. Yeah. Awesome. This H Upman is, uh, kind of already taking the band off, but, mm. uh, it's definitely in the, this last few puffs ramped up in strength a little bit. Uh, it's lost a bit of that complexity, but it's still got a nice creaminess, very wood and earth forward profile is getting to the end here, lost a bit of that sweetness, but it's still enjoyable. And uh, yeah, like I said, it's really nice kind of sitting down and uh, being able to enjoy a Cuban cigar because uh, yeah, very rarely do we do we get these chances just to kind of sit back, relax, talk about the stats. And uh, yeah, uh, I just want to say thank you so much, John, for joining us tonight. And You're uh, and all all the uh, all the people in the comments tonight, awesome awesome engagement. It was great answering all your questions and having really fun, exciting talks about the international market and the U S market here. Um, you know, this is my last official show on smoking tobacco. I'll still be writing reviews. So make sure to head to smokingtobacco.com to check out all my reviews. I've been pumping them out this last month. There's been some great cigars I've been smoking and uh, I'll be back for our, uh, cigar of the year show, which should be hopefully sometime in mid January. But yes. uh, before we head out, make sure, guys, to like and subscribe on all platforms, YouTube, Facebook, Podbean, and where you can get your podcasts. And, um, yeah, make sure to, uh, to, to light up a nice cigar. And if you have a Cuban, light one up tonight and uh, enjoy your holiday season. Enjoy the new year. I hope all of you guys have wonderful cigars and enjoy wonderful time with your family and friends. And we'll see you next week. Have a great night, guys. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Thank you for spending your time with us at Smokin' Tobacco. Please remember to like and subscribe for more episodes and content. And as always, visit SmokinTobacco.com for news and updates from the cigar industry.